Hi, I'm Mark Olson, and this is The Real, a podcast where culture and entertainment meet. I write about movies here at The Times, and a frequent topic of conversation among my colleagues on the entertainment staff is how tough it is for any of us to just keep up with the relentless wave of content between movies and TV. So this is a show about the stuff that we're watching and how we watch it. This week, we turn again to music, but this time, music on film. The new Netflix special, Springsteen on Broadway, brings the runaway success of Bruce Springsteen's long run of solo Broadway shows to homes all across the globe. And then the decades-delayed documentary Amazing Grace, which captures the recording of Aretha Franklin's 1972 gospel album in Los Angeles. Then, we move from live performance to the portrayal of recording of popular music in recent movies like A Star Is Born and Bohemian Rhapsody. And so I was joined by Times music reporter Randy Lewis, pop music critic Michael Wood, and music reporter Garrett Kennedy to talk about the challenges of capturing live musical performances on film, along with the difficulty of depicting the alchemical magic of what happens in the recording studio to create the music we all love. Let's listen in. One way to get the conversation started is that as we're having this conversation later this week, Netflix is going to be premiering Springsteen on Broadway, the sort of filmed version of Bruce Springsteen's recent series of performances on live on Broadway. And now, Michael and Randy, both of you have actually saw the live show. Maybe, Randy, you can sort of talk a little bit about what the show is. Why do you think Bruce Springsteen did this? Why did he feel that he needed to do this kind of solo presentation on Broadway? I think it was a challenge for him. It grew out of the experience of writing his autobiography. So he's going back, you know, mining his life, re-examining stuff. And it seemed like kind of a natural step to make a theatrical version out of this. I mean, my feeling about it when I saw it was, you know, you go to a Springsteen concert and you get a lot of great music with some interesting setups and between song chatter. And you go to the Springsteen show and you get a lot of chatter and a few songs sprinkled in between. And Michael, what was your impression of the, of the show when you saw it? Yeah, I think Randy's right on about that. I think, Randy, you liked it a little bit more than I did. For me, it was kind of a struggle because the show is kind of like a radical reorganization of a way the Springsteen show works where he actively discourages people from singing along. I remember I saw it opening night or one of the couple of opening nights and it was like some people started to sing. He started strum, born to run. People started to sing along. And he's like, no, 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 no. I got it. I was like, whoa, it was like weird Springsteen as school marm. Do you know what I mean? I saw what he was going for. But for me, the show didn't provide that emotional catharsis that I go to see Springsteen for. But, you know, an interesting new way of looking at a guy we've seen infinite number of times, which I always am into. I watched the Netflix special, and it was interesting to me that he interrupts his own songs so much, that so much of the storytelling that he's doing is sort of interspersed with the songs as opposed to like, I'm going to talk and then I'm going to sing. Randy, does that seem unusual to you that it's like he's undercutting music in a way? Well, I think the show is about this story that he wants to tell and, and this journey that he's taken through his life. And so the, the music illustrates that in certain ways, but in some places it's bits and pieces rather than full songs. But there are several that are full performances in it. But it's kind of episodic. So you have these little bits he talks about, you know, starts with his neighborhood and then he talks about his dad. There's this long section of his dad, one about his mom, talking about leaving town, discovering rock and roll, forming a band. And so it's this sort of, you know, chapter approach to an overall narrative. And I think that was his main mission is trying to just talk about the way music had just inspired him and fueled his life. And here it is. Well, that's one of those intriguing things about the Netflix special is that 
even though he's extended the run many times, and he's performed the show, I think, much more than he originally intended to. It was a very expensive ticket on Broadway. Not a lot of people were really able to see the show. And so the idea that now that the sort of live experience has concluded, he's going to present this to people all over the world in their homes is to me like an interesting sort of wrinkle in the dynamic in the same way that we're sort of dealing with how do theatrical movies interrelate with streaming platforms is an interesting version of like a tour or a live performance and what happens afterwards. Like the fact that he's making this available after the run, I think is really intriguing. I mean, it kind of subverts the whole thing, which I think the idea of the whole thing, what was special about it was that, oh my God, I'm in this room with this legend. He usually plays stadiums with room 50,000. Now there's 900 people in this room or whatever it was. It sort of subverts that whole thing. So, I mean, it's on one hand, it's like a betrayal of that original promise. But I mean, you know, of course, like you said, the tickets were wildly expensive. So, And is this presentation, how to the two of you is it different from the sort of VH1 storytellers, MTV Unplugged platform? Is there something different about this, like the format and the presentation that he's doing? I think the elaborateness with which, or the thoroughness that it was imagined, right? Like, it's not, like I said earlier, it's not just a guy sort of ripping off the cuff. It's carefully composed. It's a whole evening. I mean, two hours, two and a half hours, whatever it is. The presentation, the guy on the stool with the acoustic guitar leads you to expect a certain amount of like, oh, I remember this one time, blah, blah, blah. But it's actually like much more careful than that. Yeah, there's a a through line to this thing that doesn't necessarily happen in the VH1 storytellers, you know, just where somebody's sitting down with guitars and, you know, here's some of our favorite songs and in a way you haven't heard them before. This is a theatrical event. And he takes us from beginning to end, and the songs are chosen accordingly. So the first song we hear is Growing Up. He talks about when he was growing up. And then when Patty Scalfa, his wife, comes out, he sings Tougher Than the Rest in Brilliant Disguise, which is about the themes of trying to have a relationship with somebody. And what does that mean when, you know, when you're a rock star and, and when you know, all your magic tricks that work on stage don't work in real life? So it's really a cohesive piece that takes it beyond just an unplugged performance. And now one thing that's interesting about the Springsteen special, the Netflix special, it's directed by Tom Zimney, who has worked a long time with Springsteen and actually also directed the documentary Elvis Presley, The Searcher, that was on HBO recently. But Garrick, do you have any feelings about capturing performance on film? I know the last time you were here on The Real was back in the spring. We talked about Beyonce's performance at Coachella. And that to me was very interesting because of the fact that people saw it live streamed. Just the the grammar of how they shot that show was really interesting. Do you think there are specific challenges to capturing live performance on film? Is it? Do you think it's hard to do? I think it depends on the artist. I mean, you know, you bring you bring up Beyonce and that's a performance that was so choreographed for the people at home as much as it was for the people in the audience. And that's not something that everybody's thinking about. And I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, frankly. I mean, I, I think it's up to the artist. I think it's their preference. I'm fine with it either way. Um, it doesn't distract me. You know, someone like, you know, Beyonce, who on all of her tours, that really is designed as to look as, as well on screen as it does if you're 10 feet away or 20 feet away or 100 feet away. So, I mean, I think it's great when folks think like that, but not everybody's thinking like that. And I think that's also fine, too. It's so interesting that right now we're kind of all being able to enjoy the documentary Amazing Grace, which is a document of the recording of Aretha Franklin's 1972 album that for various reasons, both of, I think, production concerns that when 
Sidney Pollack, who originally directed the footage, apparently he didn't really slate the shots correctly so that it was a near impossible task to sync the audio and the film footage that they have. And so this stuff just languished for a very long time. And then over the past few years, producer Alan Elliott's been working to bring it together. And then Aretha Franklin apocryphally kept blocking it from being seen. She did not want this film released. And then after she died this past year, it's suddenly her estate allowed it to be released. And so kind of we are finally at long last being able to enjoy the movie. It's been given a limited release in New York and Los Angeles and the company Neon has bought it to distribute it later in the year. And now, Randy, I think you got a chance to see some of Amazing Grace. And does it live up to waiting 40 some years to see that footage? Yeah, I think absolutely it does. I went to the one-week Academy qualifying run that was here in L.A. and saw it in a theater with with an audience. And it just knocked me out. And I wasn't sure that I'd have that response because I've loved that album since it came out. You know, it's one of the great gospel albums ever done. And I thought, well, adding the visuals to that, is that going to help or is that going to distract from the music? And as it turns out, thankfully, it just elevates everything. One of the great things to me about it is you see her in this moment. I mean, she's really connected to something else. And I talked to some people coming out and they said, oh, she seems kind of remote, like she wasn't into it or that she was, you know, didn't want to be there. And I thought, no, man, she's inside to bring this music out. And it's astounding to watch. And Garrick, did you find it interesting with Amazing Grace to get the opportunity to take performances that you might know well and to sort of see them in a way? And especially to, to me, the most astonishing thing about that, the movie, is just watching her sing. It's such a physical yeah. performance. She is going through something right. when she's singing. What was it like for you to sort of actually see her singing those songs? I mean, yeah, like Grandy is one of my favorite albums of her. And I mean, it's someone that... Much of my love of gospel comes from having Aretha being played in the house. And so having that experience is, you know, I'm 31, so I wasn't around at the time of these albums coming out. So it's been discovering them later on in life. I mean, Amazing Grace is a really particular one because that's something that you can feel what you're seeing, which is this almost like outer body experience that she's having because she's so in tune with the music and also with the word that she's delivering. I mean, that's just really what it is. You're seeing, you know, the power of gospel and especially the power of gospel being performed in the black church in real time. I mean, it just, it's unlike anything else you can ever experience. And that's another beautiful element of this, that the film brings it that you don't experience quite in the same way just from listening to the recording, although, you know, again, it's a stunning record. But you see this interaction between Aretha and the choir and the choir director, and they are co-stars of this film. I mean, I've been to any number of black churches and seen, you know, traditional gospel performances. And again, we were talking about the communal aspect of the Springsteen thing. This is a communal thing. You know, you're there for a church service. You're here to hear a sermon. You're there to hear music. And this delivers that in a big way. Yeah, I mean, it's very exciting because it, it feels like news footage in a way. You know, it's sort of lit in that kind of like grainy early 70s sort of way. It, you really get the sense that you're capturing, you're witnessing a moment that it's just all the more interesting because, you know, as we've said, the album has been around. It's so familiar. It's such a, an established part of the Aretha lore to then sort of see this like, whoa, this actually was just something that happened on two nights. You know what I mean? In the world. 
And do any of you have any sense of what Ms. Franklin did not like about this movie? Like why she wanted it to be kept away? Well, she talked about it. And, and there's stuff in the David Ritz biography of Aretha where she talked about it. She said they weren't paying her what she wanted to be paid. And so she didn't want this thing out. And she didn't feel like that she had a contract that she was happy with as, as far as the quality of the footage or the film itself, I didn't hear or read about her complaining about that specifically, but she was just not happy with the terms of the deal. You know, this was supposed to make her a movie star. She was queen of soul. She was at the top of the charts in the record business. She sees Diana Ross making movies, Barbara Streisand's making movies. This was kind of pitched to her, okay, we're going to make a movie star out of you. And that didn't happen. And that sat really badly with her for a long time. And now from kind of performance on film, I think it'd be interesting for us to sort of segue into talking about the capturing of the recording of music and sort of the making of music on film in particular, because both A Star is Born and Bohemian Rhapsody, two movies that are have been out this year, both feature a lot of time with musicians and a lot of time in recording studios. Garrick, for you from A Star is Born and maybe Bohemian Rhapsody in particular, do you feel like they accurately capture the process of music making? Well, accurate is a... Interesting term to use, I think, for both of those films. But I feel like A Star is Born felt far more rooted in the reality that I think all of us have seen as music reporters in this field for very long. And so even though I disagree with kind of the approach to how pop music was treated, there was still such a seriousness about just the music itself, no matter if we're making fun of these pop songs or, or how we're showing Bradley Cooper as sort of the suave, you know, the way he took on the characters. Um, I think that was done really, really well because you can tell that they really were so serious about like, this music's got to stick, man. You know, it's, it's, yeah. if nothing else, the music is going to be spectacular. And I think that that's probably the greatest thing because it's something where I wasn't ever really excited about another version of A Star is Born. I definitely wasn't excited when the prospect of like Beyonce and Clint Eastwood, I was just like, oh God, yuck. But then, you know, Gaga and, you know, and Brett, I mean, together it, it did work. I mean, I think probably the most special thing about it are those scenes where they're singing and those scenes, my gosh, you know, the moment where we're seeing her in the club, seeing Le'Veon Rose, like, mm. just my goodness. I mean, it's just such a beautiful moment. And that is very much what those types of performances do feel like in real life. And so I felt like it was really great. But also, it's Gaga doing it. And Gaga knows how to do all this stuff. So I think you're going to get a level of authenticity right out of the gate compared to Bohemian Rhapsody, which, you know, we can obviously get into. But I, I didn't feel any of that with any of those music making moments. It felt so very schmaltzy and like cheap in this sense of like, these scenes aren't really about showing the craft of this song. It's about like, let's try to get the crowd to like understand how this song came together. So they were thinking about it that way as opposed to like, let's just be in the studio making music and then something comes out. And if there's story, I felt like they were trying to service the fact that there wasn't an actual plot in Bohemian Rhapsody, surprisingly, despite the fact that there's so much material. I think every studio moment was sort of this reaction to like, well, we don't have an actual thing that's happening. So, like, let's try to explain another one bites the dust. And it's because we fought. And it was just so very weird. Everything felt so strange and, like, never really thought through in almost every scene of it. I, mean, I don't know if you guys felt that way as you were watching. Well, Brandy, did you even make it through? <laughs> I, I I made it 45 minutes in, and that's, that's as much as I, I could take. couldn't resist asking. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, my feeling about it was that the director, Brian Singer, his whole knowledge of anything to do with pop music has come from watching 
watching films. <laughs> right. That's it, actually a really good point. It, yeah. it, it's not from really experience any of any of this stuff directly. I mean, it was so cliched, so stereotyped that the script was just awful and embarrassing. I felt bad for the actors who tried to do their, their best with yeah. it. I mean, I just kept going back to the Spinal Tap line. There's such a fine line between brilliant and stupid. <laughs> um, you know, the one thing it made me yearn for is the outtakes reel of the Mike Myers scenes where Mike <laughs> oh Myers my is the, the, the yeah. doofus record company manager who says things like, this will never sell, and we like formulas. Formulas work. Yeah, sorry. I mean, there is there is a great story there, and maybe somebody will tell it someday. But maybe, I mean, the problem yeah. is, like, A Star is Born, certainly we're operating on a higher level in every way, and performance is better, it's more credible, and yet... A Star is Born is just as dumb about the machinations of the music industry as Bohemian Rhapsody is. I mean, Absolutely. You know, it's like, I mean, I'm the not the first or the hundredth person to say this, but the whole idea that, like, we're asked to believe that Lady Gaga, the, her only path to success is to sing this stupid song on Saturday Night Live because that's what a real artist has to do to make it. Never mind the fact that this artist is being played by Lady Gaga, whose lived experience is actually the counterexample to that. She didn't succeed by dumbing down or being cookie cutters. She succeeded by being weird and idiosyncratic. So this is such a logical fallacy. Now, I still enjoyed A Star is Born, at least the first half, because the way, I mean, the scene when she's ostensibly writing the song in the parking lot is incredibly moving. I mean, the depiction of the joy that an artist feels when he or she comes up with a piece of music, that was tangible. Do you know what I mean? Bohemian Rhapsody aimed for that, never really got there, I mean, all you really need to know is that there's a scene where Brian May's character is in the studio and he's hit a wall or something and he goes, we need to get experimental, which no living musician or dead for that matter has ever said, though. It's absurd. But it's hard to capture that process because it's not inherently filmable. Well, there's a romanticizing of this, and a lot of, I think, movie makers, film people want to feel like they get part of this world or that they understand the creative process. But, you know, it's ineffable. It doesn't always come down the way, oh, I'm sitting here with Freddie Mercury scribbling this, and oh, I just got this great line about Scaramouche. I'm going to write it down. So there's just a lack of understanding, and I think what's interesting is when you have some serious film directors encounter music where Peter Bogdanovich worked with Tom Petty and Martin Scorsese did The Last Waltz and these you know documentaries, but they have an affinity for music, and they present it in ways that doesn't try to simplify it or explain it because a lot of this stuff you know is is a creative process that doesn't go to easy explanation which is maybe why the one successful part of bohemian rhapsody is sort of where singer or whoever directed while he was away for a minute whatever the story (laughs) is there doesn't try to explain essentially it's the last 20 minutes of the movie which is more or less a shot-by-shot recreation of queen's live aid performance there is no sort of editorializing there is no condensing. There's no explaining. It's just kind of presenting the thing as it happened, which was a pretty incredible 20 minutes of performance of of pop music kind of history. And I think the film actually gets that kind of right. And especially because you can kind of see it from an angle you never got to in the real thing. You know, I mean, that actually part of the movie kind of works for me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that part. And I think there's two things that we're going to land as Live Aid and also the creation of Bohemian Rhapsody. I mean, you can't drop the ball on that one since you've named the film after it. And so I think those two scenes are probably the most special. I think they probably work the best. They were the most exciting to watch versus something like A Star is Born where every single performance 
it's just wraps you up. And I think one big thing to me, even though as much as I love the live, I think it just made me yearn for the original because I get distracted really easily. So like the shot that's like so clearly this just overly painful digitized audience distracted me yeah it, you know that that yeah. shot that they just couldn't resist of coming in from the top of the stadium it was just like oh no i would have actually rather you just pair what's happening on stage with just the actual footage from the audience from the original since you were trying so hard to recapture so shot by shot versus you know stars born where everything was great but like Every single time there's a performance, I'm just thinking about like, oh, God, this Coachella crowd really just got such a treat in every right. performance because every single shot was at Coachella or Stagecoach. Which, so, Randy, you were actually there, right? I was yeah. when, when uh, <laughs> they, they, they shot the opening number uh, with Bradley Cooper there and Lucas Nelson and his band backing him up. And they took over the stage from Willie Nelson. And we got to be part of the movie audience. And it was very surreal because we couldn't hear any of the performance. They were just hearing it all in their mm. earphones or the earbuds, whatever. And, but now, did you know what was was happening? Yeah, they, 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 Willie said, you know, the Bradley Cooper's, you know, wants to film a scene here, so I'm going to give him some stage time to do it because he's using my son's band. You know, what? Yeah. <laughs> they were super what's, transparent what's not about that part, yeah. which yeah. I thought was great. And I, you know, even getting, you know, her fans to come in and like none of them probably were going to Coachella. I mean, she played it the year before, replacing Beyonce, and so to be able to see her in that space and it just be you, you know, just. I don't know how many 20,000 fans that were, you know, extras for the day to watch those things. I mean, I think that made those scenes even more great because you're playing to an actual audience. But now Randy brought up a really interesting point that it's the intimacy and in some ways the kind of the just the magic of musical performance. It is the thing that's hardest to capture. Michael, why? I mean, I think it's like why? Look, in an age when you don't have to even go to festivals anymore, you can just watch them live stream. The thing that's fun about going to them is there's just something in the air. There's just some electricity. I mean, when it's good in the air that is like you can't. It's not just what you're seeing, it's what you're hearing, it's what you're smelling, it's the, yeah, I mean, who knows, whatever, you know what I mean? It's ineffable, that's the whole reason that you've gone. And also, I mean, it's just hard to, you know, Beyonce is the counterexample, as she so often is, she figured out how to shoot these things to transmit the electricity, to sort of get all the angles, to get the camera moving in the right way, but it's super hard to do that because you can make something that's very exciting look very static or or maybe vice versa it's just hard to kind of like capture that choreography and with that i think that's a great place for us to wrap it up so why don't you tell everyone where they can find your work online garrick at garrick kennedy on twitter is probably the easiest way i'm always plugging links of my work and everybody that i work with so i'm on twitter at michael wood and i'm on twitter at randy lewis too and you can find me, of course, at Indie Focus. And so for the LA Times Studios and The Real, I'm Mark Olson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>